Hi everyone, Dr. B here again. Welcome to Ask the Dentist, a podcast where people ask questions. Most of you know the format. We usually have a recorded question that I respond to, but today I thought I would ask a question. I do this occasionally. I do about two to three hours of research a day, midweek, Monday through Friday, and I come across a lot of different things. And one topic that I think we haven't discussed enough and I haven't gotten any questions about it, so I'm going to talk about it today, and that is the DSO. What is a DSO? This is a new trend in dentistry. It's growing quickly, and it's going to affect you in some way or another. And how does it relate to functional dentistry. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to define it. I'm going to tell you a little bit, a little story. I worked for a DSO a long time ago, and we're just going to chat about how this could impact dentistry and whether it's right for you or not as a patient. You've probably come across some of their ads. They're very aggressive in their marketing. And so I'm going to explain why this may not be for you, what you should be wary of. You know, if you are a DSO patient, then what to look out for. So anyway, today we're going to talk about dental service organizations or dental support organizations. I'm going to refer to them as DSOs. That's pretty much what we all in the profession refer to it as. And it's essentially a business model that is growing quickly, especially after COVID. A lot of dental offices closed during COVID and were not able to reopen. They either filed bankruptcy or they, they just ceased to exist. And the reason for that is, is that the overhead in a sole proprietorship, that's a single dentist working, putting up his shingle. That was the term we used back in the 80s. And he would start his own business. That's one of the allures of being a dentist is that you have control over your own business. You are a business owner, a small business owner, typically. That appealed to me. That was one of the things that I checked off on a Myers-Briggs test, a career test using the Myers-Briggs back in the 80s. You know, I loved healthcare, but and my father was a physician, but I didn't want to work for a hospital or, or a large nonprofit organization. I already saw the compromises that my dad had to make as a physician, and it's only gotten worse. So so anyway, but the unfortunate part is is that when you do open up a dental practice, which I did from scratch back in 80 1988 in Sunnyvale, California. It's very difficult to grow without falling prey to all these HMO, PPOs, these dental plans that guarantee you a certain amount of patients, but they force you to reduce your fees. And and that's difficult to do because the overhead in dentistry typically is 60 to 70, could be even higher, percent of your total gross. In other words, the profit margin is... The money you can take home after you've paid for everything, actually not including taxes, is 30% of the money coming in. And, and there are very few business models that, are, that have such a high overhead. Restaurants come to mind. And it works well as long as you're continually busy. But there were times when you're not busy in a, in a dental practice. There are seasons of busyness before Christmas is very busy. Sometimes around tax time, it becomes very quiet around a dental office. The stress of having to do your taxes and see a dentist evidently is too much. That's how my staff and I always explained it as we had some time to chat, you know, the first week of April. And there are other seasons too. Back to school is busy. The summer can be slow. A lot of cancellations because people are taking vacations and, and, and that kind of thing. So 
And it's the same with a restaurant. So you really have to keep the volume going to keep the practice going. And of course, something like COVID comes along and all of a sudden you're down by, in some cases, 100% because dental practices were closed. That's why those practices couldn't open. They just couldn't keep paying the overhead without the volume coming in. So this is where the DSO comes into play. It's a corporate entity. It's not an insurance company. The DSO, and it's growing. I'll give you a list of what their names are and how many offices they have in the U.S. This is a company, a corporate entity, could be a private equity firm that comes in and takes care of for the dentist who really wants to work with their patients and do the clinical work, running the business. And again, we have no training in how to run a business in dental school. That's not the part that they like typically, hiring and firing and and doing payroll and marketing and practice administration. But So the DSO comes in and does all that for you. Human resources. It's like having a human resource department, payroll, marketing, IT solutions as practices modernize with paperless offices. I mean, this is this is very helpful. Uh, I did all this alone in my practice, all the computers. I was the IT guy. I even did Windows <laughs> as well as my staff. And we were all cross-trained to do this. And that is very difficult. It can be very stressful and it takes a lot of time. That's the practice administrative support that is needed. You know, dealing with uh, OSHA compliance, uh, you know, I, I gave most of that to my head assistant who did a wonderful job, but, you know, you have to fill the binders and, and make sure you're compliant. It changes each year and we would have meetings and keep up with that. You literally have to take courses. I would, as the dentist, have to take continuing education courses to keep my license. It's very challenging. I'm not complaining. It's it's a great job, great profession, but it's important that people know that, that a dentist who's doing well is juggling a lot of balls. So anyway, back to the DSOs. So the DSOs are very attractive to some dentists, especially young dentists who find it quite overwhelming. So they come in. Let me read from their association. Again, when there's an association of like dental support organizations, you see this in, in many different professions and organizations, I get a little nervous. That means they've banded together and and it's almost like a lobby group. Anyway, the Dental Support Organization, this is what it states on their website. It's the ADSO, the Association of Dental Support Organizations. And essentially what they say is the Dental Service Organization, DSOs, contract with dental practices to provide critical business management and support, including non-clinical operations. The creation of DSOs has allowed dentists to maximize their practice with the support of professional office management. The DSO model enables dentists to focus on the patient while delivering excellent dental care. Boy, that sounds really appealing, especially after what I just said about how difficult it is to run a dental office. So, you're kind of getting the idea of what a DSO is. Uh, I'm going to expand on this a little bit. I'm going to tell you a little story about my first experience with the DSO. I've had several experiences with DSO later in my career. And so we're going to flesh all this out. And the reason I'm doing this is because when you're looking for a dentist, you're going to come across, there's a lot of them in the US right now, you're going to come across the option of seeing a dentist that is being managed by a DSO. And I want you to know going in what could happen. What are the pros and cons? And and will you be able to get a functional approach with a DSO dentist? And so this is what we're going to talk about. So I hope that introduction 
was adequate. And and so now we're going to discuss what it's all about, how it relates to your potential dental experience. And then in the end of this episode, I'm going to kind of give you my personal thoughts and some personal, more personal experiences with DSOs. I've met, as you can imagine, a lot of patients that have had a DSO experience because they've come to me for a second opinion. I'm just going to kind of ramble on about all this. And, and I hope this this will help you when it comes time to make that decision. So here we go. So let me just start off with a, a little story. Back when I graduated from dental school in California, I was looking for a job and I had a lot of student debt. My wife was working and I really wanted to come out of school making a good income. I mean, I wanted to be able to repay that loan quickly and, and not be a drain on the family. And there were many options. One was you become an associate, you work for another dentist, you start your own business, which is very risky, or you work for a clinic. And at the time I was very naive. I mean, a, a, a large clinic, seeing a lot of people, I really wanted that experience of doing a lot of dental work right out of the gates. And that's what I got. I joined a essentially a clinic that was hiring dentists. Uh, I was paid a daily rate. I was given a lot of patients and a lot of dental work to do. And this was a clinic. It was a chain. It had many locations. And at the time, I didn't know how unusual this was, but I was interacting not only with the owner, technically on paper, the owner of the clinics, who was a dentist, but I was also interacting with one of the co-owners of the clinics. And he was a non-dentist. And so I was upstairs. I had wonderful assistance. Everything was provided for me. I didn't have to run a practice. All I had to do was sit down and do the dentistry, which I was very excited to do. And dental school, you do things very slowly. It could literally take you a half a day to do a filling, another half day to do a root canal because you're being very carefully scrutinized when you're working with the patient every step of the way, you know, to make it safe for the patient, of course. And the patient gets a big discount for having to spend that much time in the clinic. And, and that allows the dentist to be, come out as a safe beginner. This is how we teach all our clinicians, whether it's medical or dental. But once you're out and you're, you've passed the board and you're deemed clinically safe, uh, then you start doing a lot of dentistry. And, you know, a filling should take 30 minutes. A crown should take an hour a root canal should take an hour or two. It shouldn't take half a day. If it did, the fees would be much, much higher. So the dentist has to accrue that ability to be able to do it in a certain amount of time. And, and that's just, that's skill, that's experience, and that, and that does take time. So I was definitely thrown into the pool and forced to swim very quickly, and, and I enjoyed every moment of it. So I was doing a lot of dentistry. Thank goodness I was well-trained. I was the only dentist in that clinic being given all the root canals because they figured out that I could do them quickly and properly. And so my training really did help me. But the part I didn't really get at first was that often the one of the co-owners who had his own office upstairs, uh, very close to where my, my operatory was, he would come over and say, yeah, I got a patient here for you. He'd pull out a pano. The pano is that big x-ray and I'd say, you see that right there? Let's do a bridge there. And I go, okay, well, that, that looks interesting. Well, let me first meet the patient and do a workup. And that's not how it worked. The workup, the treatment planning and the diagnosis was done by a dentist downstairs. And that's all he did. He would never do any clinical work. So the person who was doing the work was not the person who was 
determining what the work was going to be. And so I kind of fought back on that. I resisted that. There was a lot of work coming up to me and to my assistants where the patients had periodontal disease, but I was asked to do a bridge. It was on the treatment plan given by the dentist below downstairs. And then I was taught in dental school that you really don't essentially remodel the kitchen until the foundation of the house is is assessed and, and is sound. In other words, periodontal disease, you don't put in expensive three, four, five thousand dollars worth of dental work on something that could crumble eventually. But this dentist was diagnosing that downstairs and treatment planning it. And then of course the other owner, who was not a dentist, would come up with these x-rays and say, Brahenna, hey, do do this three in a bridge here. And I would look at it and go, well, there's a lot of bone loss. Shouldn't we first send it to a periodontist? Well, being naive and doing a lot of dentistry and happy with that, I literally worked around that. I would talk to the patient and didn't know this was, you know, grounds for being fired. And I would refer him to a periodontist. I would find out who I found out who the best periodontist was in town. This was in Millbrae, California. And I would give him a card. I had asked him for some cards, never met him, would give the patient a card and the patient would disappear. And about eight months into this, that owner who was a non-dentist pretty much figured out what was going on because these patients would disappear for a while and they wouldn't do what was treatment planned. And then I guess he found out. So I got fired. I got fired from my first job and I'm very proud of it. It was just a sweatshop. And I saw that in the other dentists that were working there. There was one that had been there for 20 years, uh, an older guy, and he was very unhappy. And then the rest of us were all young and out of dental school, and and we all were gone within a year. And then the next set comes in. And so really what that DSO did, and I learned a lot in so many ways other than just dentistry, I learned that this is not the way I wanted to practice and that it's not good for the patient. It's also not good for the dentist. Because the dentist can't do what he's been trained to do, and the patient gets a result that is based on that corporate desire. Essentially, I found out later that it was illegal for that co-owner, who, by the way, could not own more than 49% of the practice. There's a law in California, and I think it applies to other states as well, that when it comes to a corporate ownership of a practice, a professional with a degree, which I think is a good rule, has to own the majority of that practice. But it didn't matter because this guy would come up and tell me what to do. And he had no clinical background. So how does that translate to poor dental work or poor choices for the patient? Well, I think you get it, right? You've got a non-professional making decisions for you with making money in mind. So so that's my story of my first gig. I opened up a practice after that, and it all worked out just fine. But in retrospect, looking back, that was a great experience for me because it really showed me the dark side of dentistry very, very early on. The bad news is that this model is growing. The DSO movement is growing. As I said before, there are a lot of advantages. You know, The dentist is allowed to focus on their clinical and patient experience. I'll talk more about why I don't think that's true while all the administrative and operational duties are managed by this third party. They bring in their own people. They can do a lot of the stuff off-site and really help you stay up to date. They claim that it allows you to provide higher quality care with less time spent on menial operational tasks. It allows the dentist to have a better lifestyle. That's if they can sleep at night. Uh, 
Also, participating in a DSO can yield access to cutting-edge technology like scanners and better technology. Some of that's true. I've always said to young dentists that ask me advice, it's better to go in under one roof with several dentists. That way you can share the tech, have better machines, get a Panorex, get a cone beam. These are all very expensive machines that do allow the dentist to do a better job. But a sole proprietorship, it would be difficult for them to afford that technology or at least to keep up with it. Scanners, for example, interoral cameras, all, all these great things. Most of them are great. They also, these DSOs claim that there's a special mentoring program. I would call that essentially brainwashing. They tell you how to make a lot of money and how to move quickly and get patients to accept large treatment plans. Again, there is some synergy there where if you can do a lot of dental work in the quadrant instead of just one thing, then there's a benefit to that because you're doing more work for the time spent or the time spent preparing that patient for the work. That's called quadrant dentistry. And sometimes it's necessary. But the fact that it's available, you the dentists start tending to look at everything as a quadrant and they want to do as much as possible in that time given allotted for the work. It's profit-based. They won't say that up front, but it kind of starts working that way. And that would be one of the disadvantages of a DSO. And this can be enticing for young dentists with a lot of debt. A lot of dental students, and you may not believe me, please Google this. They will graduate with up to half a million dollars worth of student debt. I mean, I graduated with a lot of debt. I think it was $90,000. That was 30, 40 years ago. Maybe that's similar if you account for inflation to today's current debt. And I was able to pay it off in 10 years. But that is always a factor in the back of the mind of a dentist that is looking at you. And hopefully they're looking at you as a patient, as a biological being that has biological needs and not as a chart number or as an insurance plan with certain benefits that he or she can take advantage of in that year. So what are the disadvantages of DSO? There are a lot of disadvantages for a dentist. And let me back up a little bit. A DSO can happen many different ways. It can be a young dentist joining the DSO like I did because it was a guaranteed job and a lot of dental work right off the bat, a lot of clinical experience. But it can also be a dentist that is midstream in his career and having some difficulty. Maybe a COVID-like event occurred and that scared him. And he joins the DSO and he signs a contract. Or it can be a dentist that's selling his practice. And the DSO comes in and dangles a lot of carrots in front of him, a lot of cash. And the contract then would be you stay on for a year or two and help with the transition. So there are many different ways that the DSO will come in and take that practice and take it over and put it into its quiver of practices throughout the US. Essentially, it's a it's like a franchise. And I'll talk about all the names and who to look for and what these names are throughout the US. But the disadvantages essentially are this. The biggest drawback to signing up with a DSO, essentially the, the dentist, there, there's a lack of independence and autonomy. He cannot call the shots even though technically he should. And the contracts are written up to get around these state laws where the dentist has to own 51% of that company. It's easy to do that with a contract. But because the DSOs manage everything from payroll to administrative staff, they'll hire and fire for you, they'll find people for you, your practice really doesn't have a lot of freedom. And it can become quite onerous. I mean, they will make decisions for you and force those decisions. Another key disadvantage to joining a DSO is that the focus can be on numbers instead of providing patients. I mean, 
there's a boardroom up there and they're they're looking to see that you're you're meeting their minimum requirements for profit. Otherwise, they're going to close you down. Can you do that and provide a high quality standard of care? There are many dentists that have joined DSOs voluntarily say, that say that they can. DSOs can boast greater numbers because of their ability and scope to serve more patients because they have this umbrella and, and they can lower overhead by economies of scale, by improving those. But the quality and personal nature can often diminish as a result. That personal connection between the dentist and the patient, that long-term loyal on the patient's part, that responsible feeling on the dentist's part, that relationship and the length of that relationship is typically affected. What's interesting here, and I I read this in a commentary by a very well-known dentist who I admire greatly, Dr. Gordon Christensen out of Utah. He has a column in several different dental magazines. He talks about millennials, and, and I think this is important to realize. Millennials, I have three kids. They're all millennials being born between 1980 and 2000. They are rapidly becoming the major factor in the workforce and obviously as well for dentistry. I see a lot of younger dentists. I speak with a lot of them almost every day. They're different. They have a different attitude, and I like it. They're looking for a better lifestyle. Dentistry can, they say there's a high suicide rate in dentistry. It's actually higher among physicians, but it is a tough job. I mean, you're giving a lot of yourself physically, mentally, and of course, running the practice. You are juggling a lot. But millennials want a better work-life experience. They've seen their parents go through their profession, their, their work, and I don't think they liked what they saw. They're also very technologically savvy. They rely on technology more than our age group. I'm 62. They're also very globally minded, very environmentally minded. They're more likely to recycle. They're typically more liberal and progressive, which can be a good thing. They're very team orientated. All of these things are important. So the problem with this is that these characteristics are very prone to being taken advantage of by a DSO. So I think millennials and DSOs are very attracted to each other. I I think millennials like the idea. And if you're a young millennial out of dental school and you see the DSO, you meet with a DSO, it's attractive. It's something that is very attractive to that millennial dentist. So I think that's a very interesting comment. Anyway, let's, let's talk about who these DSOs are. So Heartland is still the largest DSO in the U.S., over a thousand locations. I had to do a little research these numbers keep changing, but that's a thousand clinics in the U.S. And they are the number one. You can go to their website and read about them. You know, it's very positive and how they're changing dentistry. And, and then second and third positions are traditionally held by Aspen Dental and Pacific Dental. That's about 874 locations. And then Great Expressions, Affordable Dentures, and then Western Dental, who I have a lot of experience with. That's about another 900 locations evenly dispersed there, about 350 for each of those companies. So the other experience I have with DSOs is as an expert witness. I've done a lot of work in the courts. The last case I did, I won't mention who the DSO was, but it was in Sacramento, California. And I literally sat next to the judge on the stand and was grilled by their experts. And anyway, I was representing the plaintiff. The defendant, of course, was the DSO. And and this is just one case. I've been involved in, in many. And it's pretty scary what these DSOs do. Part of their business plan is 
they've already pre-funded a certain amount of defense dollars spent in defending these cases. Obviously, they're worried about their reputation. And by the way, the reputation of DSOs is mixed. If you do a little research, you'll, you'll see a lot of negative talk about DSOs. I think it's, you know, it's hard to say, and I, I don't want to, I'm sure there are some good people working in these DSOs, but on the very high levels, the corporate upper echelons, the priorities are not in the favor of the patient. Let me just put it that way. This lawsuit that I was an expert in, I literally sat up there for eight hours a day for almost three days, about six and a half, but it was an eight hour day explaining to the judge, you know, what was going on and all the intricacies of the dental work that was done. And and then she actually went to another DSO, the patient. Things got worse then. And it was a very complicated case. But the commonality between all these cases is that the dental work typically is rushed. A lot of it is done at the same time. And the treatment plan isn't always the the best. It was not necessarily the best thing to do for the patient. Really, it was about trying to get as much out of that dental insurance plan right up front and get all the co-payments from the patient and then on to the next patient. And they really, they're not interested in building a long-term relationship. The cleanings were 20 minutes long. Pocket readings were exaggerated so they could do periodontal work. What I'm saying here, if that, if that doesn't mean anything to you, what I'm saying is that the need for work was over-exaggerated. There was no, let's wait on this. Let's see if we can fix this a simpler way a less complicated way. Let's take our time. And, and here's the big connection I want to make. There was no education for the patient. There was no functional approach like, okay, you're getting a lot of cavities. You've got a lot of holes in your teeth. We're going to fix them all. This is how much it costs. How about preventing that from happening in the future? And, and this is something that is very important gum disease. You can treat gum disease and it'll come right back if you don't change your diet and behavior when you're at home and your home care and all of that. So very, very inconvenient for the patient, costly. I've seen them on the stand in tears. And typically the the judges get it. Once it's explained to them in the business model, they understand it and they rule for the plaintiff, you know, the patient. So that's where I'm coming from. And and now I'm going to kind of just give you my little two bits on all of this and some practical advice on how this would would affect you and and how you should approach this if you're deciding to go with a DSO. So let's go to that now. Here's my advice. If you get a coupon in the mail, and and a lot of these coupons from the DSOs are are quite appealing. In other words, you may get free x-rays, you may get you may get a free exam. Go ahead, you know, if you want, if you if you've talked to people that have had good experiences there, Maybe you've got a good dentist that's working there, at least for a period of time. Hopefully, there's some continuity if you do join that practice. But I would always get a second opinion. Typically, when you go into a DSO, you're going to get a big treatment plan. That's just the way they work. That is their business model. And so it's always good to get a second opinion, just in case, in case you are being sold a bill of goods. I hate to say it that way, but it can be that way. Also, ask who the dentist is that's going to treat you. Make sure it's the dentist who's giving you the diagnosis and the treatment plan. Make sure that there is that continuity. That can happen in a DSO. So I would definitely, if you like that dentist and he is explaining things to you, and then make sure, ask for that, even in writing if necessary, that that's the dentist that will treat you. Often people will go in one day for some treatment, and then even though it's a, a crown prep, a crown service and the crown is delivered two weeks later, it's a different dentist. 
And I don't know if you see that as a problem. I do because when someone does work on one entire project, that quality tends to be much better. But when one person starts the work and then one person completes the work, the person who completes the work may see something and say, well, you know, it wasn't my fault. I'll just shine it up a little bit and it should be fine. It's better if one person does the work when it comes to dental work. I, I, just trust me on that. It, it is That continuity is important. Second opinions, definitely get that. And then the other thing to consider is what if you were to see a functional dentist? Would in the long run, would you spend less money because you are being provided for by a functionally minded dentist? I mean, he's going to, he or she is going to reverse a lot of decay, perhaps prevent a lot of future dental work that needs to be done. Again, the best dental work is no dental work, always. The best surgery is no surgery. It's important to think that way. So I think in the long run, even though the upfront costs with a functionally minded dentist, perhaps, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that to be the case. It could even be lower. But I would consider that long-term relationship with a functionally minded dentist because overall, your treatment outcome will be better. And I think most of the time, you will spend less money over that period of time. If you get a lot of work done up front by many different dentists at one of these clinics and you think you're saving money, I would think twice about that. I'd like to conclude with just one more very short story. There was a dentist working next to me. He was probably five, six years older than I am and wonderful dentist, really respected him, had a great practice, local boy on the football team at the big high school, wonderful man, well-respected, great dentist, and had built himself a nice practice. He was a role model for me. That's something that I too wanted to achieve when I first moved into the center and then got to know him. And then 30 years later, he went to sell his practice and he sold it to a DSO. He was there for two years and his whole demeanor changed. His joints started aching, his back, he was under a lot of stress and he actually had a heart attack. I just saw such a big change in him. And for me, that was another another lesson in why this DSO really is not good. If your dentist isn't happy and if he isn't well, I mean, he essentially was stressed. And I spoke to him many times and he warned me about selling to a DSO. He essentially, and he's out of it now and he's, he's doing well, but he essentially warned me in so many words saying that, listen, when they come in, you cannot be the dentist that you want, that you've been or you've, you want to be. It's impossible. You cannot do what you know is right for your patients. It's too difficult. That really was very eye-opening for me. I mean, I, I knew all of that, but to see it like that, you know, in a wonderful person like that, his patients loved him. A lot of patients left the practice after he sold it, even though they came to see me and were getting second opinions, like I recommended earlier. And they would always start saying, oh, I, I loved this guy. I was with him for so long, but I, I just can't stay there anymore because things have changed. The staff changed. Think about that next time you th are thinking about going to see a DSO. That, that to me is a very, very sad story, but a very telling story. And, and I just don't think that's the future of dentistry. And, and he wasn't even a functionally minded dentist. He was just a good, solid, old world, hometown boy, great clinician, doing a great job and servicing his patient pool just wonderfully for a long, long time. And you know where I'm going with this and how I feel about it. I don't like DSOs. I've seen too much damage, too much 
too much fallout on everyone's part. And really, this is a relationship. I mean, the dentist needs to be happy. The staff needs to be happy. They need to be doing what they feel like they should be doing. And then the patient needs to be happy as well. And the last thing we need, we've got a third party already. We've got an insurance company. The last thing we need is another, call it what you want, a fourth party or another intervening money-minded bottom line entity, and that is the DSO. So I'm not keen on DSOs. I'm not saying that you know, you can find one. Maybe there's a dentist you like at a DSO, but consider all the caveats I've spoken about in this episode and make sure you get a second opinion. Always keep an open mind. Look out for the warning flags, as I've mentioned. All right, that brings to close another episode of Ask the Dentist. I hope you enjoyed that. A little background on the profession and my perspective on dentistry in general. I think you heard aspects of that, how it changes, how it is a business and how that affects you as a patient. So always be wary. Find that connection to that person who's treating you, the dental hygienist, your dental assistant. They have a lot to do with the outcome of dental care and your dentist. And make sure that you know this person well, these people well, and that they are friends and you can call them family. I know that sounds corny, but that's how dentistry used to be done. And I don't think DSOs will capture the whole market. Medicine is almost that. It's 98% HMO, PPO run by big corporate entities, either nonprofit or for-profit. We see it and we've seen what it has done to medicine. I don't think that's going to happen to dentistry. Dentistry is a different animal, but it is a growing market and I think it will capture 50-60% of the market eventually. I have a lot of functional dentists that reach out to me and on our directory list. I stay in touch with them and they're very nervous. They're concerned, especially the young ones. And they're like, oh, my God, DSOs are taking away my patients, my potential for my patient pool that I can pick from or or that, you know, are out there looking for a dentist. And and I tell them, you know what, don't worry about it. It just means you're going to be even more differentiated and more desirable because you are going to be offering a better, better product. And and patients, yes, they may run astray, as I've seen in the courts and, and in my practice, getting second opinions. But eventually, they'll get to you. And once they do, they're going to stick with you. So anyway, enough of that. The politics of dentistry. Hope that wasn't boring. But again, if you're looking for a dentist, it's important to know this stuff. Who you see determines more than just your oral health, your systemic health. If you have any questions like this, please ask them. Go to speakpipe.com slash ask the dentist. You can ask me anything. It doesn't have to be clinical. It can be about dentistry as a profession, the politics of it, insurance questions, how do insurance companies get involved in dental care? Do they interfere with dental care? Absolutely. We've written about this a lot, my staff and I, on our website. Go to askthedentist.com. We've got several several articles, on not on DSOs, we we mention them, but on insurance and how you should try and be self-insured. We call it the margarita plan. Hopefully, you, if you Google that on our website, it will come up. I think it will. And then lastly, if, if you are looking for a dentist, and I've scared you off of the DSO dentist, because there will be no functional approach at a DSO. There's just no time for it. It's not in the budget. It's not in the marketing plan. Then obviously, you're going to have to find the functionally minded dentist. So we have a directory. Go to askthedentist.com slash directory, and you will find a functionally minded dentist, someone who you can stick with for a long, long time. Again, thank you so much for listening. I hope that was of some help. And uh, I think you pretty clearly know how I feel about DSOs. I'm very passionate about dentistry. 
Uh, it's a profession that I believe very strongly in, and it's more than just your mouth and your oral health. It is so much more. And ultimately, I wish that medicine and dentistry were really under the same roof. Not that corporate roof, obviously, but in terms of clinical care and seeing the big picture, that global systemic view, that would be great. And maybe one day that will happen. In the meantime, go see a functional dentist. We'll see you next year, 2022. More episodes to come. Thanks for joining me. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a dentist, doctor, or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional dental care provider, you can visit askthedentist.com directory and search our Find a Dentist database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, is a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.